You're welcome to have a seat. Welcome here to Mountain View Sunnyside. If you're visiting us this morning, uh, ushers can come forward and take the offering. If you're visiting us this morning, feel free to let that go right by you and consider your gift to us, your being here this morning. We appreciate you being here. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain View Church, and thank you for having me back. And if you're anything like me, your bracket has been in the shredder since about last night like 6, 7 p.m. or so, uh, Villanova killed me. Anybody else? You, you, anybody still have their Final Four teams still in all the way? Dan? I should have known Dan did. Uh, who doesn't care? A few of you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Lord, have mercy on your soul. Um, I'm teasing. Um, but this week, uh, we are in the last week of the book of Esther. We've been going through it for a while, and... I mean, I think it's just been awesome. Something that I've noticed repeatedly again and again, and I think that we've said even from, uh, from the stage, is that Esther is so relevant. It's so, it feels so contemporary. And we've talked about how that is for, for several reasons. We've, we've mentioned again and again how the word God, the name God, is not mentioned once in the entire book. And yet, we see God everywhere. Right? He's behind everything. He's under everything. He's over He's He's the handprints of God, the fingerprints of God are all throughout this book, right? And this is part of, I think, what makes this book feel so contemporary, so relevant, so true to life for us. After all, there is no, uh, no sea is parted in the book of Esther, right? No, no fire is called down from heaven. Bread isn't multiplied. We don't see any of these miracles, And we can still believe that miracles happen today, that miracles are true and valid, and God still steps in to do miracles today, and still acknowledge that they are infrequent. They are abnormal. They are miracles. That's what the word means. It's a suspension, divine suspension of the natural order of things. So because of that, Esther feels so real, right? It feels so contemporary, so similar to our everyday experiences. And because of that, I think it has a lot to say to our everyday issues and problems, as I think you've experienced over these last weeks, and I hope that we can see even today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to actually power through the last four chapters of Esther. And I know, the face you're making is the face I made when I was told I have to preach on the last four books of Esther. But it's a lot, but we're going to get through it. Uh, Just to set up the stage before we get to chapter 7, verse 1. In the last chapter, Esther has gone before the king and pleaded with him to, or actually, she's gone before the king and pleaded with him to have a banquet and, and, and invite Haman as well. The king is kind of confused. He spends that night restless. He asks a guy to read over the annals of Persian lore and finds out that Mordecai, you know, saved him and he was never recognized for it. So he decides to recognize him and honor him instead of Haman. Haman, who had already that day prepared a really tall, sharpened pole on which he could impale Mordecai. And instead of doing that, he has to spend the whole day honoring Mordecai. So he, Haman's feels like he knows he's at the end of his rope. So we see him at the end of chapter 6 with his wife, knowing that something bad's probably going to happen to him. And it ends with, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. And that's where we get in chapter 7. We're stepping into this banquet setting with the king 
Esther and with Haman. And so that's where we're at in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Excuse me. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. This is the first time she's coming out publicly saying, I'm a Jew. This is big. It's been kept hidden until this point. Hidden from uh, the king. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. That's verbatim the language that Haman's decree uses to kill, slaughter, and annihilate the Jewish people. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Can't you just imagine him saying, Oh no, the queen's Jewish? Oh no. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. This is good news for the Jews, right? Their adversary, their enemy, the one who's been working to have them killed, slaughtered, annihilated, all these things is gone. He is no more. And yet, his decree remains. See, in Persia, when a decree was sent out from the king, it's irrevocable. It stands. It doesn't just go away. So Haman's gone, but the Jews are still due to be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. So Esther courageously, I think, takes the risk of going back into the presence of the king. Uninvited, unbidden, right? This is a no-no. It's a breach of protocol. She herself could be punished and killed even for doing this, but she takes the risk again. She goes before the king, it says, begging with tears that he would do something about it, that he would make a way for the Jews to be saved. And so the king tells Mordecai and Esther, all right, write another decree to counteract Haman's. And this is what they do. The king's decree, this new one, gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. The Jews can defend themselves against Persians who come against them. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. Again, mirroring the language used in Haman's decree. And defend they did. If you read through the rest of this book, 
which I encourage you to do so when you go home, you would see that there's an awful lot of violence and killing and bloodshed. But the Jews are saved, ultimately. Uh, Their enemies are defeated, and they're safe once again within the Persian kingdom. And so they decide, as anyone would do, if you experience such an amazing act of salvation, they celebrate. So in chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, we read about what kind of celebration this would be. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days, the two days commemorating uh, when, when they defended themselves successfully. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. This festival, this feast, uh, is called Purim, and it's still celebrated today. Uh, In fact, as I was reminded uh, between the services, it was celebrated just a couple days ago by the Jewish people. And it's this crazy, raucous celebration with feasting and uh, Jews meeting together in the synagogue where they will basically just party, right? And there's a big public reading of the whole book of Esther, and it sounds really fun. I'd love to go. They, they read it, and whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, people clap and cheer like it's the greatest thing, like you saw a buzzer beater at, in March Madness in the NCAA tournament, right? And then whenever Haman's name is mentioned, people boo, and they hiss as if he's uh, a referee who just made a bad call in the NCAA tournament. But then I'm just repeating myself, because referees always make bad calls. Sorry if you're a referee here, but that's just the way it goes, right? My dad was a basketball coach. No referee is good. So chapter, then we go into chapter 10, and it ends with Mordecai being named the prime minister, the second most powerful person all of Persia. So there's a lot going on in these books, but I think there's a couple things that uh, the Lord would like us to focus on this morning. And one of those is this first point in your sermon outline, that sooner or later, injustice will be judged by our righteous God. In this passage, in these chapters, we see justice served in several ways. <coughs> Excuse me. We see, of course, Haman receive justice. He, he's built this 75-foot-tall sharpened pole in order to impale Mordecai on it. And he instead receives a justice, and he is impaled on that very pole. In the same way, Persians who are enemies of the Jewish people, seeking to kill, slaughter, and annihilate them, are themselves killed, slaughtered, and annihilated, receiving the justice of God for their, in, for their unjust acts. We see justice littered throughout this book, throughout this passage in particular. And this justice involves quite a fair bit of violence. And this violence can strike us as a bit unseemly, can make us uncomfortable. Uh, I am certainly, whenever I read passages like this in the Bible, pretty squeamish, right? Um, But one of the things I think passages like these reiterate for us is that God is just. He doesn't stand by and allow injustice to happen without doing anything about it. He stands for justice and for righteousness. He stands for the downtrodden and the abused, and those who are suffering. God is a just God. And if you've been following along with us in our Shape Bible reading plan, we've been going through books in the Old Testament like Numbers and Joshua and Judges, places where we see 
divine judgment as a recurring theme. We read about it over and over and over again. And we can be tempted to think because of the starkness of some of these examples in the Old Testament that, oh, the Old Testament, God was wrathful. He, was, he had vengeance and he was a harsh judge. And the New Testament, we see God as you know, gracious and loving and merciful. They're kind of two different gods. I think if we give a closer reading to the Bible, we would see that that's not the case at all. It's the same God in the Old and New Testament. And if anything, this theme, this recurring theme of divine judgment is emphasized even more strongly within the New Testament than it is in the Old. To take just one example, John chapter 3, this famous chapter in the New Testament about the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. Right, we see in John 3, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In the next verse, that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world through him. It's just lovely, awesome chapter about being born again and receiving the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. There is redemption. And then the very last verse of chapter 3 says this, And anyone who believes in God's Son is eternal life, and anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Even in this chapter of God's grace and love, we see God's judgment. They're all wrapped together. They're all of a piece. And this is because God cares about injustice. God cares about the suffering of his people. He doesn't want to just sit idly by as it, as it goes on. God is a just God. And he wants to serve justice. So I think rather than this being an unattractive aspect of God, I think it's a pretty attractive, appealing aspect of God. That God cares about us. He cares about the things we're going through. He's just. And this is a natural, <coughs> I think, impulse on our part to long for justice. I mean, we see throughout our society, throughout our culture, people longing to see justice, to see unjust people be punished. And certainly in our flesh, in our own human nature, we can take this too far and become vindictive and become mean and nasty and lack grace and love. But at its best, this is a biblical sentiment. We see this even in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, where those who have been martyred, those who have been killed for the sake of the gospel, they cry out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what you have done to us? Justice and longing for justice is a biblical thing. Because God is a just God. And this is indeed part of the gospel. Right? God sent his son into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. But the world is saved through Jesus Christ, not through itself. And then God will return again. Jesus Christ will return again to make everything right. That is an act of justice. He will right wrongs. He will judge injustice. And this is certainly terrifying for unjust men and women. But for those of us who call upon Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. This is our hope. This is the hope of the good news, that God will come to make everything right again. God is a just God who hates injustice, who hates sin. And one of the things that when we are God's people, we are empowered to do is to be bringers of justice, to be people of justice. We have the opportunity today to be redeemers. It's the second point. 
I think in some sense to redeem someone is to win justice for that person or to uh, help someone overcome injustice. I think that's what being a redeemer is. And that's what Esther does. She's a redeemer in this story. She helps save and redeem the Jewish people in Persia. She saves them from the evil hand of Haman and all of those who sought to destroy them. And how does she do it? How does Esther redeem? She does it by taking a risk. She does it by putting her life on the line. In a word, she does it by embracing death. So think about it. How does she do this? In chapter 5, <coughs> Esther takes the risk of going before the king. And make no mistake, this is a risk. She's uninvited. She's unbidden. She just barges in to go see the king. And this is, she can receive a harsh penalty for this. This is against the, the rules. This is against protocol. She could be killed for doing this. She puts her life at risk in order to fight for the salvation of the Jewish people. She does it in chapter 5. And then she does it again in chapter 8. After Haman is killed, but the decree still stands, she takes the risk again to go to the king and plead with him to do something. Right? This, the, the people are redeemed because Esther embraces death. She takes that risk. When she says at the end of chapter 4, if I perish, I perish, that famous line, that's something that a person can only say when they put the value of other people ahead of the value of their own lives. That's courage, frankly. We can only take a step like this when we're living a lifestyle of redemption, a lifestyle of deliverance, when we're living out the habit of courage. I'm reading this book right now called On Reading Well by this lady named Karen Swallow Pryor. It's basically a book looking at different virtues through various works of great literature. It has one chapter on courage, the virtue of courage. And she distinguishes courage from bravery. We kind of think those mean the same thing in our minds. I certainly kind of do use them the same way. But according to Pryor, bravery is value neutral. So I can be brave and do something really good, and I can be brave and do something really stupid. I can be brave and do something evil. Courage is not like that. Courage is not value neutral. Courage always involves the protection and preservation of what is good. And prior, as she puts it, courage isn't some one-off act. Courage is a habit. It's a habit that enables a person to face difficulties well. That's what courage is. Esther has that in spades. How, How can she go and ask King Xerxes to put on a banquet when she knows that her life is going to be on the line by just simply going to him because she'd already prayed and fasted beforehand. She prepared her heart to be able to put herself on the line, to be able to embrace death. And she's able to do it again, not because she's already been there and she knows that the king's going to be okay with it. It's still a risk. She can do it again because she's done it before. She's made it a habit now of being courageous. She's, she's made a lifestyle of working for justice, a lifestyle of redemption. And this is the kind of thing that we can do today. That I, in fact, I think God is calling us to do stuff like this today. You know, maybe we're not kings and queens with the power to write irrevocable degrees, decrees, but we can all of us work for justice. We can all of us develop within our hearts the habit of courage. We can all of us today be redeemers. How can, what practically, what might that look like? I think we can see it in, in, a, in a couple different 
hard but realistic ways. One is to say you're at work and you see someone, a coworker, make a big mistake, right? And it'll hurt them. A one way of embracing death like Esther did, taking a risk for the sake of other people, would be to take the fall for that person. That's embracing death. Another way might be, say, you have a friend who needs an operation, costs a lot of money. You decide to give a whole money to, to, to cover that operation, a ton of it. And you just keep it to yourself. You keep it quiet. You don't receive the glory for it. You don't say anything. That's, that's hard. Another risk. Or say, if, as a parent, I'm a parent of two little girls. As a, one way of embracing death as a parent would be something as simple as apologizing to our children. Which, if you're a parent, you know that is tough. I could just say, no, I'm dad. I'm always right. It's tempting. But embracing death, placing the value of other people's lives ahead of my own, would mean apologizing to my kids when I, when I wrong them. So you might think maybe these things aren't like Esther. It's not putting our lives on the line. Our life's not at risk. But they are, in a way, embracing death. Right? I'm, putting my, I'm putting my pride on the line when I apologize to my kids. I'm putting my desires to spend on what I want or to receive glory by giving to someone else and keeping quiet about it. I'm putting my success at work on the line by taking the fall for someone else. This is embracing death. And one of the best examples of this, embracing death, of having the habit of courage, is my grandmother, her life. Um, We call her mama. Uh, She and her husband, my my grandfather, we call papa, right in there. Uh, You know, their house was like a second home. It still still is, and we loved them so much. And for over a decade, my papa had uh, dementia, which, if you know, is just the worst. Worst disease. Uh, hard on the person who has it, but arguably harder on the people around that person, the people closest to that person, and that would be mama. And she sacrificed everything for his sake. She reordered her life in order to be with him all the time, to care for him. She took him to all of our games and everything that we were doing. And, you know, she endured all of the hard things about it with such grace and humility, right? All the annoying things, like hearing the same stories over and over again, little frustrating things she endured, but also the the harder things, you know, like, when his personality would begin to change. It's hard. And she endured them without a peep. We as grandkids were none the wiser. We had no idea that it would be even difficult for her, that anything was even different. But she did it. She sacrificed for him. And then when it got too hard for her to care for him at home, she paid, spent what must have been gobs of money to put him in a great place right next to my parents where we could visit him all the time until he passed away last year. Mama had the habit of courage. Mama was a redeemer. She worked for justice. And that's something that we can all do. We can all build up this habit of courage within us. We can all be redeemers. We can all work for justice in our world that so badly needs it. Our justice, our deliverance, our redemption is however temporary. It doesn't last. But God's deliverance lasts. 
it lasts forever. <coughs> we see this in Esther. In Esther, the Jews are saved, right? Everything works out well for them. It all ends happily ever after, except the story goes on, right? It doesn't end there. Eventually, the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and the Jews would return, expecting it to be more glorious and more fantastic than it was before, and they were disappointed. It paled in comparison. And then eventually, the Romans ruled over the Jews. So it wasn't a complete happy ending. Human deliverance fades. It doesn't last. We need something better, something more powerful, something more lasting. We need, frankly, God's deliverance. We need God's redemption. And how does God redeem in the exact same way? By embracing death. God redeems us by embracing death. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, was born of the Virgin Mary, a baby, and then lived a perfect life, was condemned by Pontius Pilate, and then was crucified, died, and was buried. You think about that? God died. God, the one who created everything. God, the one who created you and me. God, the one who was before time. God, who we can't even begin to fathom without what he's given us in his word. That God died for you and me so that we could live. And then he rose again triumphantly in victory over Satan, over sin, over death. So that we too could triumph over Satan. He has no hold over us anymore. So that we too could triumph and have freedom over sin. So that we too, when he returns again, would be raised to new life. With new, heavenly, glorious bodies. Where sin can't touch us. Where death can't touch us. Sickness, illness. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the better Esther. He's the better Esther who embraces death, not by begging for salvation, not through writing a decree, but by going himself on Haman's pole, by allowing himself to be impaled for us so that we could be saved, not temporarily, but for all of eternity. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he's offering all of us today. So you see, God's deliverance is different. God's deliverance is the ultimate act of justice. Because God looks at all of us who have sinned, all of us who have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us who, like Haman, have committed millions of tiny little injustices throughout all of our days. He looks at those of us who deserve the wrath of God, and he takes that wrath upon himself on the cross. So that we would never have to experience that wrath again. Indeed, we would be reconciled to God, and we could be called friends of God. And because Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God, because Jesus Christ bore the justice that we deserved, that means when we experience injustice, when we experience suffering, we know we can be comforted because Jesus Christ already endured it first for us. We know that when we're undergoing suffering or injustice, that the Father hasn't turned his face away from us because the Father's already turned his face away from Jesus Christ on the cross so that he would never have to turn his face from us. He undergoes the suffering that we endure with us. That is justice. That's our just and righteous God. God's deliverance also enables us to be redeemers. 
Mama, she cared and sacrificed for Papa because she loved him, but surely she also did so because God loved her first. When we contemplate, when we think about all that Jesus Christ has done for you and me, that, if we're thinking and praying about it rightly, that moves us to joy. That moves us to love him and to love other people. That moves us to want to live, to give up everything for his sake. That moves us to want to be redeemers, people who work for justice, people who build up within ourselves the habit of courage. And on top of that, God gives us the Holy Spirit. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, lives within you and me to empower us to do his work of justice and restoration and redemption. And lastly, as the worship team comes back up, God's deliverance is lasting. It lasts. It doesn't fade. It's not contingent on this world. It doesn't depend on anything else. It doesn't depend on any other people. It is eternal because God is eternal and God has won this deliverance for us. It's the only thing that we can do about a God this great is give our whole selves to him. Repent. Believe in him. Surrender our entire selves to him so that we can receive his amazing, everlasting grace. Turn to him and what Mordecai says in Esther chapter 9, where he says, our sorrow was turned into gladness and mourning into joy. We can have that, not temporarily, not for a moment, but for all time in Jesus Christ.